Okay, we are live now. So, Namaskar and welcome to this uh, Indic Chat webinar, uh, Professor Kak. I'm your host, Abhinav Agarwal, and I'm delighted to welcome once again you uh, to this webinar. For those of you who are not familiar with Professor Kak, he is a uh, the Regents Professor and a previous head of the Computer Science Department at the Oklahoma State University Stillwater, and who has several contributions uh, in the areas of cryptography, artificial neural networks, and quantum information. In addition, he is a notable contributor and leading light on Indology, and has several books on the subject to his credit. We had spoken with the Professor Kark last year on his book, The Wishing Tree. We are now delighted to have him again, this time to talk about his book, The Loom of Time. Welcome, Professor Kak. Thank you, Abhinav. So your book, Loom of Time, that published in late 2016, early 2017, uh, you write it's one of your most ambitious books. And you write that, uh, uh, that reality is generated in a recursive fashion and uses this, uh, and you use this insight to illuminate many puzzles of uh, history and culture. So let us start with recursion. First, could you explain what you mean by this recursive nature of reality and how do we even begin to understand reality from that perspective? Um, in my uh, entire meditations on the Vedas, if you will, I've concluded that recursion is one of the central ideas of uh, the Vedic system. And what recursion means is that there are structures which are repeated across time and scale and of course, uh, you have uh, a Mahavakya, Yatta Pinde Tata Brahmande, as in the cell, so in the cosmos. And uh, most um, uh, dramatically, if you will, uh, this was uh, coded in the idea that if the sun and the moon are uh, 108 times their respective diameters from the earth, and this is our outer reality, Likewise, our inner lamp of consciousness is uh, one of eight symbolic steps from our earth, which is our body, which is why we had 108 beads in the Japamala or 108 uh, karanas or uh, dance poses in Bharatanatyam and 108 uh, pilgrimages and so on. So basically the idea was that, look, things are repeated. And even in the idea of Samudra Manthan, or Amrit Manthan, right? You have the Devas and the Asuras who are respectively our spirit and our body, uh, embodiments of, uh, in, a, uh, in a constant churning, which is what creates all the wonderful possibilities. Likewise, there's got to be a constant churning within each individual, uh, as far as the individual's sense that he's the he or she is the spirit or he or she is the body and without such churning you cannot obtain um, special or extraordinary insights and if one tries to look for um, unitarity within oneself without looking at the actuality of the deepest unitarity expressed in this duality. There's got to be a duality. Without that, you cannot uh, obtain um, uh, amazing insights. 
So, so this is a constant theme, and this is a theme which helps us understand a lot of things, including what's going on uh, in world affairs. You know, just a few years ago, 20 years ago, you had Francis Fukuyama write a book, The End of History, suggesting that now uh, the Soviets were done and America and the West had triumphed. Things would be all perfect. But that was that is in error, as we see now with uh, all the crisis that is taking place both in Europe and the United States. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll say that in, in your book, some of the statements uh, are like uh, riddles. For example, in, uh, uh, in chapter two and paragraph five, you write that intentions, and I quote, intentions cannot belong to the world of objects because they would then be subject to causality and thus not be free. They must transcend space and time and be a part of the order underlying recursion. Now, I have to admit, uh, I felt like I was back in school inside, uh, you know, sitting in class, uh, attending an electrical engineering and circuits uh, lecture. So you will have to, uh, you know, explain this to us. Well, uh, what I'm really talking about is that you have uh, physics and all other subjects. And in these physics, there's no place for observers, right? In, in in all these subjects, there's no place for uh, individuals who can have freedom. Then how do we square that with the idea that we actually are free, right? So there is a problem. Freedom cannot be a part of any uh, academic or intellectual framework. And so where do we find freedom? This freedom has got to be or has got to belong to a space which uh, is um, not the same as the physical space time. And, uh, and this is, once again, something that is stressed beautifully and repeatedly in the Vedic text, and which is why, you know, you have uh, the two um, poles, if you will, of Vishnu and Shiva. Vishnu is the moral law. And so therefore, morality is something that we see all around us. So Vishnu or Krishna is always present around us. That's, those are uh, the concepts that we want to look at it through. But on the other hand, you cannot find Shiva anywhere because Shiva represents freedom, uh, agency, right? And mm. that's the reason why the Sri Chakra, for example, uh, Shiva is the infinitesimal point right in the center. Because all those triangles represent prakriti or reality, physical or other causal reality. And likewise, in Durga Puja, you find what is shown is the lifeless body of Shiva on whom the goddess dances. And this is to indicate and suggest a most subtle insight. In fact, it's absolutely incredible how they zeroed in on this. The Rishis zeroed in on mm. this. And this is something that we also see in modern physics, like in quantum mechanics. The, moment, the more they try to look for uh, the observer, the more it seems to recede. And the last 70 or 80 years of quantum mechanics has been this search in different ways of the center of consciousness. And although people have tried different approaches, they have not been successful at all. You know, uh, this brings me to this uh, uh, very fascinating excerpt I saw from the PBS documentary, Closer to the Truth, and which you tweeted a link to, where you talk about the collapse of the superposition of the physical state as a result of the observer trying to observe that reality, 
or you, you know, more accurately, you say the consciousness of the observer. And you then say that much of physical reality is a conception created within our minds since, since we cannot, uh, you know, uh, directly observe most of physical reality. And you, I, I think you also say that because uh, most of the universe is not observable. Therefore, it is uh, to a great extent uh, a construction of, uh, you know, the universe as we understand it is the construction of our mind. So, uh, and, you know, just a, a minute back, you talked about uh, Shiva. So, can you explain how do you connect Shiva and the Shamshan with the duality of uh, reality? Well, uh, let, let me first of all um, start by the whole idea of superposition. Um, in quantum mechanics, uh, which uh, goes beyond classical mechanics, where in classical, classical mechanics, objects have definite properties, and we can speak about it uh, in definite terms, mathematically, we can model it. Uh, this crisis that physics uh, encountered in the 1920s was finally overcome when uh, Schrodinger said, well, uh, the way forward is to look at an object as a superposition of many different possibilities. And in his own uh, autobiography later on, he said that this insight came to him from the uh, Upanishadic Mahavakya, I am Atma Brahma, that this Atman is equal to Brahman, has mysteriously, the entire Brahman is mirrored in the Atman, right? So this is the idea that came to him. But having said that, the mind insists that things are discrete and separate, right? And therefore, our mind constructs its maps of reality and our understandings in discrete structures. So what one is trying to say here is that, look, reality is not discrete. Reality is not separate. It's not local because classical physics is local. Things are isolated. In reality, they are not isolated. And there is a certain veil which falls on this true nature of reality, which, of course, in, um, in our uh, tradition is called Maya, right? Which uh, I wrote a technical paper on it uh, two or three years ago, and I called it the principle of veiled non-locality. And uh, so our mind then throws this cloak, so to speak, on reality as we see it. And in order to really be connected to the true nature, a certain unveiling is required. Hmm. There is another way, another um, figurative uh, uh, way one can look at it. You know, um, the, the, the great uh, image in uh, the Bhagavad Gita or Kathopanishad is of the individual, the self, sitting in a chariot, right? With the charioteer next to him, who is Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita. But the individual is sitting facing backwards, sadly. And how do we see that? Neuroscience has shown that all our conception of agency are delayed by a few hundred milliseconds. So, could you the decisions are uh, could you clarify, could you clarify, Professor? Could you clarify that for our uh, our viewers? So, uh, first, as you said, that the individual and the charioteer are sitting with their uh, the charioteer is sitting with his back to the 
uh, individual. And the second point okay. you said, the right. Yeah, the charioteer, of course, is facing forward. Krishna is facing forward, if he use uh, that phraseology. And we are, you know, like in the Tanga of uh, North India, when, uh, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, we are facing backwards. And what does that really mean? Uh, neuroscience, and these are very important results, which came up uh, about 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, there was this test where this uh, neurosurgeon asked the patient, because the patients are um, not under anesthesia when brain surgery is performed because there are no pain sensors in the brain. So he asked the patient to press a button at whatever time he wanted. And um, the activity in the motor cortex corresponding to the finger was recorded. Now, you know how much of time uh, electrical impulses would take going from the finger to the motor cortex point and both ways, right? When that time was subtracted, it was discovered that the impulses had already started building up in the motor cortex. A few hundred milliseconds prior to the moment, the individual thought he was taking a free decision. So that most of what we do is determined by our senses, right? And our senses are driven. They are on an automatic, all right? And then we think that we are being free. So then the challenge is, in other words, now uh, we are talking about something um, more deeper uh, than uh, just uh, living the way we normally do, because living the way we normally do, we are driven by our past, by our history, by our culture, by our expectations that people have of us. So the challenge um, in order to break through this veiling that is on, our, is on that recursive connections that we have, which we do not touch upon, is to, so to speak, turn our body around so that we are looking at the future the same way as the charioteer. And that's when we are one as the charioteer. You know, that's what the Vedas, what, that, that's what the Rishis say. Find yourself. Once you find yourself, then Atman will be Brahman, right? Then you'll be, you would have turned yourself into divinity. So this is a kind of a modern, modern take on this, if you will. Interesting. Fascinating. So I'm going to get into more specifics now. And uh, you talk about uh, uh, parallels in history and you say that what, happened in Kashmir with the, uh, you know, what happened in Kashmir with migrants in the 13th century is being repeated in Europe. Now, first of all, I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll request you to tell to our viewers, you know, uh, a little bit of background to this. And the second is that, is this really recursion or is this repetition uh, or iteration? Because the difference might be subtle, but I think it's important to shed light on, on why you really see this as recursion or do you see this as repetition? Well, it's both uh, recursion and repetition. Uh, recursion, when you look at Kashmir is a small place. It's just a thousand square miles in area. But when you go back into history, you discover that what happened was that uh, at that time in Central Asia, there was a lot of uh, disorder. So people came in, migrants came in, 
And at some point, then the migrants uh, seized control of the instruments of the government, right? Now, um, I'm not saying that one should not be humanistic. One should have compassion. One should help uh, migrants or refugees. And Europe should definitely do that. But what is happening on a much larger scale compared to what happened in Kashmir or what happened probably in Afghanistan and the other parts of Asia, where um, the, uh, the Vedic ideas had been a part of the ancient history, whether one calls them Vedic or not, ideas uh, which are similar to Vedic ideas, you know, with a certain fundamental unitarity at the basis of reality. One sees that the same thing is happening. And what, what, what the takeaway from this examination of history is this, that the, uh, that if there is a certain fundamental disparity in worldviews, which is going to create problems later on, what the host should do is to be aware of that fundamental disparity. So the main point that I'm trying to make here is that it's wrong and erroneous to believe that all views are identical that it doesn't really matter, that history doesn't matter, that culture doesn't matter. All human beings are fundamentally the same, I do acknowledge, but culture does matter and history does matter. And if one does not acknowledge it, then one only ends up uh, repeating, um, repeating tragedies that have occurred in the past. So you say this is both uh, uh, an example of recursion as well as, uh, as repetition. And uh, continuing on this topic, and, and uh, I'll talk about uh, or I'll ask you about uh, a little more on this East versus West debate. And you quote a lot of people, including Huntington, Samuel Huntington, who's uh, best known for his, uh, for his book, The Clash of Civilizations, and then uh, Hobbes. And you argue that the West essentially believes that the only way to keep the peace is through a dominant power that would keep all other countries or powers in awe. And you say that Huntington wrote that unless we hate what, what that we are not, we cannot love what we are. And later on in your book, you say that the, or, you know, if you look at the left, on the other hand, at least in India, it has sustained itself on a narrative of grievances and victimhood. And this, if you consider, seems to be more aligned with, the, with this Western ideological binary of uh, love what you are and hate what you are not. And in, at least in my mind, I feel this should pose a fundamental dilemma for India since you know, so many of our politicians seem to believe in, a, in somewhat of a very uh, you know, simplistic interpretation of... Uh, of Vasudeva Kutumbakam, you know, all the world is one family. How, in your opinion, should India reconcile this, uh, you know, uh, this apparent, uh, uh, you know, difference, basic fundamental difference? Well, uh, we are talking about recursion a few minutes ago, and we see that recursion at work both in India and in the West. We find the media and the intellectual elite in the West uh, adopting positions 
which are very similar to the positions that the Indian elite in the last 20 or 30 years have adopted. You know, one might wonder, how is it the U.S. with its very different um, cultural history or historical experience of a, a, an experience of domination and power? Why are the elites now doing exactly what the Indian elites over the last 20 or 30 years have done in relation to the problems that they face, right? And that's because of recursion, because of certain fundamental ways that uh, human mind works. Now, to come to this uh, uh, idea that um, Huntington addressed, uh, there is this other point also in, uh, in world affairs related to whether one is an idealist or a realist. Indian policy for the past many decades has been from the perspective of idealism. And idealism is that, okay, you know, people are the same or you've got to be nice and then everybody else would also be nice, which is, which I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong because there's got to be a tension between what the ideals are and what the acknowledgement of the actual reality is. Now, the realists in the West and also in India should uh, what, what they do is they look at things as they are and there are oppositions or there could be forces who want to destroy you. You must, before you can deal with them, you must acknowledge that this is what they want to do. If you think that you turn your face away, uh, then somehow the problem will disappear. That'll be like what the ostrich does or that's, that'll be like how the Incas or uh, the Aztecs dealt with just a few dozen conquistadoras because they did not realize or recognize what the conquistadoras wanted to do. Now, so, so this is a distinction uh, that I speak about that, um, uh, that in my view, uh, Samuel Huntington is partly right, but why only partly right? Because um, what is happening in the West is that it has hollowed itself out in the last 20 or 30 years, following certain um, platitudes that have been created by its elites about itself. You know, a certain ideology. Uh, the West um, has developed its own ideology, which is... It has taken society to identity politics, very similar to what has happened in, the, in, in India, right? In India, as we see right now, um, for the last, well, certainly 20, 30 years with the whole idea of vote banks and this group or that group or this quota or that quota, in a similar fashion, very amazingly, uh, in the West as well, identity politics, especially in the last, say, eight years, uh, came to the fore uh, so that if you do not um, uh, tip your hat to it, you don't even have a voice, as we see in the recent controversy about um, Mr. Murray speaking at Middlebury College, uh, who was prevented uh, from doing so, or Charles Murray, or Ann Coulter uh, this past week in Berkeley. So, so we have these we have these parallels now. Uh, just to uh, complete this that point uh, about uh, why Huntington is only partly right, 
the hollowing hollowing of the western perspective has occurred because of the endless repetition of the idea that everybody is the same and culture doesn't matter and that was driven by the sense that well um, uh, there were victims in the past and you can um, prevent those tragedies from repeating if you if you do not if you do not allow um, a similar attitude of domination and so on right so if you look at everything in a level playing field and besides you have to uh, make uh, amends for what happened in the past and therefore you have to have safe spaces and you cannot discuss certain things right and and so i think something similar has happened so in in many ways uh, what is happening in india is not really all that different from what's happening in europe and the united states and it's all not completely acknowledging facts as they are and until such time that you do so you would not know how to uh, take the next step correctly i have a i have a couple of follow up questions uh, on this because it's a very very i think a pertinent topic in india also but the first question that i have is that uh, to what extent do you think uh, uh, academia plays a role either as an influencer or as uh, uh, you know as a battleground for the formation of these ideologies because uh, you took the, the uh, you know the case of charles mario and coulter who was prevented from uh, i believe she didn't uh, uh, end up speaking at the berkeley and there is some amount of literature also in the field that says that how american uh, academia was uh, systematically taken over by a certain leftist ideology over you know several decades uh do you think this is in fact true given your experiences or what you have observed in the us and secondly do you think this has been exacerbated in the last 8 years this you know sense of identity politics in the in the us well it certainly is true because uh, young kids spend many years in college and school so the curriculum at school and the curriculum in college does uh, influence uh, the views of uh, these impressionable young people and the same thing happens uh, in uh, indian universities um, which is something that um, people let's say in the early 70s when jnu for example was created uh, the ones who wanted uh, jnu to have a certain structure recognized that and the excitement of learning new things can be like that second birth you know uh, traditionally in india you had certain ritual where you got connected to your teacher uh, which is which is called janeu in north india right um, so the university um, uh, entrance and uh, your walking through it is like that second birth and therefore you found and you'll find that a lot of people who come out of the university are so shrill they're so angry uh, uh followers of whatever ideology that they have embraced right because one can acknowledge that uh, different perspectives have their own value what real education ultimately is to see how to balance these two in other words you cannot just say that i'm going to completely ignore suffering right suffering wherever it might take place but then you have to see now how do i approach it how do i solve that problem and so in any went uh, 
there are tremendous parallels again and uh, and uh, what has happened in the united states and the, uh, and in europe is because uh, elites have uh, taken control of um, the narrative in the schools and in the media and and in many ways mr trump's election given you know is 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 a kind of a reaction to it and which is astonishing because here is a person who is not able to articulate very clearly as to what he believes in and he's bombastic and in certain things he's really crude but people were so fed up at least many people are so fed up uh, that uh, who are not in thrall if you will of 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 this of these ideas uh, which are being disseminated uh, through the media and they said well enough is enough now i'm not saying that this is what what is happening is clearly where things should be going and and similarly in india as well i think a lot of thinking um, reasonable people wonder why aren't people seeing things for what they are why are they only talking about something that ought to be which is the ideal position right so in other words you know tremendous parallels and uh, i'll continue on this thread for uh, maybe one more question and that is that you when you talk about and you know in your book you do talk about the left and the right in india and you write that the and you write that the right in india is confused about its role and mission you say that it is reactive and its politics is driven by tactics necessary to win political power once in power there is little that differentiates it from other political parties and i thought uh, this was uh, you know a stunning insight because for at least for many right wing supporters this statement will you know will ring unfortunately very very true today and to my question therefore becomes is and it's you know a follow up to uh, what you were talking about uh, uh, earlier is that how does a uh, if if this is indeed the case with respect to uh, you know the left and the right wing then if the right is in power isn't it its responsibility to try and correct some of the distortions uh, that have crept into uh, you know the indian educational space because we have basically for at least the last 3 years we have not seen even an acknowledgement that uh, there needs to be a correction absolutely uh, what uh... Uh, what the right has been doing uh, or has done at at many different places is to say okay now all these excesses took place but the moment they gotten into power uh, well they just say okay now we're going to be running things uh, in a different way but ultimately institutions have their own logic right and therefore things generally continue the way they had occurred before and there might be some cosmetic changes here and there the the problem i think is that if we let's uh, let's say we talk about india once again uh the whole thing is to go back to the very heart and essence of india you know what is india uh, sometimes the right says okay maybe you know people should have um courses on our culture or you know people should um, go to uh, this school or in when they are even uh, in the earlier uh, grades they are able to 
uh, chant some uh, Sanskrit shlokas and so on. But that's really not the essence. Even if one knew all the Sanskrit one there was to know, that's not the essence. And that's a good thing. I'm not saying that one shouldn't do that. The essence, in my view, is, the, is this idea of recursion, is this idea of this constant churning between the asuric and the daivic forces within not the individual for one's own personal growth in this journey of self-knowledge, but also in society. Because if you were to construct uh, a society which is ostensibly only for the daivic, that won't do because the devas do not exist uh, in the absence of the asuras. You know, this is a kind of a, a mutual, both the sides have to be there. Materiality and spirit have both to be there. So if you, in other words, if you had an individual who was doing nothing but, um, uh, but his um, worship, if you will, that won't, that won't cut it. Do you see that? In other words, where India lost or missed the boat and where um, one of the Indian traditions, namely Buddhism, had their finger on it uh, right in the beginning, uh, you had Buddham uh, Sharanam Gachami, Dhammam Sharanam Gachami, but you also had Sangham Sharanam Gachami. The Sangha or the community was also important. But, but also, you know, I, I don't, we're not discussing Buddhism here. That's a very complicated story as well. So in the Indian right-wing perspective, generally it's only about, okay, the, uh, the individual, uh, Buddham or Krishnam or Shivam or whatever, and uh, Dharmam, right? Dhammam, that we must follow our Dharma. But that's not enough unless we also look at the larger society, the Sangham, we would fall into the same trap. The best people, uh, the best RW, right-wing people, let's say they capture power, they won't know what else to do unless they are aware of the fundamental tension that will always exist between the spirit and materiality between the devas and the asuras. Because if you, if you do not acknowledge asuras, and here I'm not talking it in a pejorative sense. You know, there are always in any community, because of recursion or in any society, there will be forces which are dragging you in the opposite direction. So you have to do churning. And churning means to build bridges, to have that constant discussion or interaction, engagement at many different levels, which will also transform the asuras. Because this way, what the West is doing and what India is doing is going to lead to disaster. Because look at the West. The West, uh, the Westerners, the Europeans have stopped having babies, right? They're... Uh, the fertility uh, rate is 1.1. So very soon it's going to collapse. Uh, the population is going to collapse. It's going to, same thing is happening in Japan. You have to have means. If you let the other, because you do need the other, if you let the other be totally isolated, you say, well, we don't, they don't do what we want them to do, then eventually you would be overwhelmed. Right? So you must also have means to transform the other. And the same in India. You cannot say that, okay, here are we, uh, 
and here is the other and the other is unreasonable but how do we also do whatever needs to be done to transform the other now this is a very revolutionary thought i don't think the rw or the larger community has thought of it because for whatever historical reasons Hinduism is also seen as a sectarian, you know, different from the others. But really, Hinduism is a universal tradition. It's not a religion like others. Do you see that? Because it says, it, it's not an ideology that you have to do this or you have to do that, or some confessional, you have to believe in X, Y, and Z, which is what other traditions do. Hinduism is about self-knowledge. It has the capacity to include everybody. So only if Hinduism, if for whatever reason, RW, the right wing in India is primarily Hinduism, it's got to transform itself so that it then gains the capacity to transform everybody else. It's only when Hinduism, because of its extraordinary insights, extraordinary insights, not only in terms of spirituality, but also in sciences, which are coming out, for example, you know, even the Indian tradition of physics, uh, as in the Vaisheshika Sutras, Indian physicists themselves are not aware of it. You know, it's sort of incredible how uh, the best in our society have turned our back to the wisdoms and insights which are inherent in our tradition. And then they're getting a second hand or third hand look at it through books written by Westerners who might be well-meaning, but who are really not connected to the very heart of the Indian civilization. This, I think this is a topic in itself for, uh, you know, a discussion and a Q&A for, uh, you know, an entire hour in itself. I'll stick with this for just one more question. Uh, and I'll go back to your book and you say that, uh, and I quote, in the practice of power, science or the institutions associated with it bend before dogma. We saw this in medieval India and we are seeing it in Europe. So first of all, I'll ask you, can you, uh, you know, give examples of what you mean that in the practice of power, science bends before dogma? And uh, the second question that I have is that in the context of Europe, are you, you know, were you alluding to in some ways the beginning of the so-called dark ages in Europe that was caused by the rise of a you know, uh, the coming to power of a very militant Christianity that oversaw, you know, the destruction or at least uh, the bending or actually the destruction of the famed library of Alexandria. And Europe in, in some ways closed itself to science for almost a thousand years still, uh, you know, and the revival of science really began when the Jesuits, uh, you know, took back the works of Indian scholars uh, to Europe. Uh, can you elaborate on, on these uh, points, Professor? Uh, yes, Abhinav, uh, I agree that uh, the dark ages uh, in Europe uh, were, uh, were set in motion, if you will, uh, when Christianity triumphed, because it is a dogma, uh, dogma which in Christianity eventually it embraced Aristotelian view of the universe, but that was a fixed view. And until such time, um, that uh, in Italy and elsewhere, you know, with Galileo and others, people started questioning um, what it was. And only when Europe embraced its own uh, pagan uh, or pre-Christian past and it embraced it 
with a total fullness in the 19th, 18th and the 19th centuries, was it able to then go beyond? Now, um, I, I will not uh, talk about, I don't necessarily agree that it were the Jesuits who brought back stuff from India to Europe, as some people have claimed, which uh, created or which started the Renaissance. That is a complicated matter uh, as to what uh, role the Jesuits had in that. But if we leave that aside for the moment, if you go to uh, USSR in the 1930s, uh, the USSR biology was set back because uh, they embraced uh, Lysenko. You know, they embrace a certain view of evolution, uh, which, <coughs> which, which they thought was more consistent with their own Marxist dogma. And therefore, biologists who wanted to challenge that were held back, which, helped, uh, which, uh, which hurt uh, Russian biology for a long time. <coughs> so I think similar things are happening right now. Let's, let's look at uh, what's happening in... Um, America and uh, Europe right now. Um, the, the, um, the dogma right now is that everything is machine-like. And <clears throat> that's the reason why, for example, uh, quantum computers, some people are trying to build, or, or the belief is that um, if such machines are built, then eventually you could uh, even have machines with consciousness and so on. You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Personally, I think that on logical uh, grounds or analytical grounds, you can rule that out. That's not going to happen. There is a mystery there. You know, let me, let me come back to this distinction between Hinduism and Buddhism, because we did uh, mention that in the, in the beginning. The beauty of Hinduism or the Vedic way is that it speaks of a certain mystery. And that mystery is uh, expressed in that uh, I am Atma Brahma, for example, because that cannot be analyzed on logical grounds. Now, Buddhism was an attempt to deny that mystery, right? And therefore, it was much more consistent, which, was, which is uh, consistent on philosophical grounds. And which is the reason why some people in the West find it easier to relate to Buddhism than to Hinduism, right? So, in any event, to come back to uh, uh, modern West, uh, the idea that everything can be machine-like has led, and this is a dogma, has led to the modern crisis because this is the dogma which is uh, taught in schools either directly or spread through the media, through, the, uh, through movies, through other books. And this has led to tremendous uh, depression, if you will, or hopelessness in the hearts of young people. They say, well, if there's nothing to, the, nothing to our lives, excepting our bodies, then maybe life is not living worth living for beyond sensations. So you get into sensations as early as you can, right? But after some point, it doesn't provide you the sense and meaning that you're looking for, right? So this particular dogma, is what is hollowing the West. And some of the most passionate in the West are turning to emotional uh, dogmas from the East, 
I shall not name them, even though they might want to destroy the world, because at least there is there is some there is some some commitment to a mystery. Do you see that? And, and so, given all of this, um, um, I, I personally I think this is the time for a for for the universal idea that the rishis came up with which is non-sectarian which i think has in it uh, the capacity to address the modern crises that are taking place a crisis uh, set forth by increasing automation because humans are going to become redundant right most of what we do normally will become uh, replaceable by robots and other individuals and the question would be who are we what are we to do where how is society be take, to be taken in one direction or the other? Do we follow the Western elite guy whose intuition is that really we are nothing but machines and somehow what we have to do is to make uh, you know, people live through life through sensations? You know, I, I remember uh, something very interesting I came across uh, on, uh, on TV in the late 1980s. And this was a program, there was a dean from the College of Education at Harvard University. In this discussion, she was saying that, look, we in the West want children to have sex sooner, maybe not at 13, but at 12, because in Scandinavia, they have it at 12 and they have less aggression. So Americans or Westerners have had a lot of aggression, which is why we have had this bloody 20th century. In order to forestall that in the next century, if somehow things are so arranged that young people can start engaging in sex, right, at 12 or even sooner, then that aggression would, 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 would go away and therefore society will be organized. In other words, they're looking at bodies, that is individuals as nothing but bodies, like, like, like what other animals are. But what the Vedas address is a certain mystery. And there is a lot of stuff, a lot of counterintuitive stuff, which you cannot understand from the machine paradigm, which can be a discussion, you know, a long discussion, you know, all the counterintuitive stuff that we have related to the speed of light, related to other stuff in the Puranas and so on, which sadly, Hindus or Indians themselves do not understand or misunderstand. If only we were to decode it, I think here we have an extraordinary framework and we are not speaking of it just because, um, you know, we are being, um, uh, let's say, uh, narrow-minded that it came from India. It doesn't really matter where it came from. It is a kind of a universal wisdom path. And right now, more than ever, we need it, not because the West has not had its own tradition of wisdom, and there have been sages in the West as well, but right now, the Western Academy, the Western media, the Western intellectual space has been captured by people who believe that there is nothing like the spirit, and we are nothing but our bodies, which is, in, in a tragic way, leading to, leading to you know, drugs, opi opiate, addiction, you know, people are dying, they're dropping like flies, and they're dropping like flies because they say life is not worth living. You know, this is uh, <clears throat> the whole topic on, uh, you know, and how academia has a role to play, I think, uh, 
is worthy of a, an entire session in itself. I'm going to talk about, you know, you, you referred to how uh, in the Soviet Union, the, you know, they went off on a wrong, uh, sort of a wrong track, uh, 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 orthogonal to, to the ev theory of evolution. Uh, on the other hand, you also have the example of the table of periodic uh, uh, elements by, uh, by Mendeleev. And you had written in Suraj magazine that uh, he was, uh, you know, this was inspired by Sanskrit. And do you want to tell our readers what you mean, uh, you know, our viewers, what you mean by that? Uh, there is some, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let you talk about it. Okay. Well, in the 19th century, some of the smartest people in Europe were attracted to India because the, the Europeans discovered India in their imagination and they found all this amazing stuff. You know, even Voltaire, for some time, they thought that India was the place where everything came from. And then there was a reaction. You know, there's all this churning. You firstly say, great, and then you turn back. And then they said, well, it actually, you know, the Indians themselves were Europeans who moved into India and then this whole conception of Aryan invasion theory, etc., was formed and then Indians embraced it. And then they thought that they were sort of inferior and you have even Jawaharlal Nehru in his autobiography and Discovery of India as well, mentioning somewhere that Indians felt that they were, you know, way down, maybe the sixth or the seventh in this hierarchy of peoples in terms of their ability for, for various racial reasons. So in any way, the 19th century was when India was this great beacon of light and the smartest people were doing Sanskrit. And Mendeleev himself was not a scholar of Sanskrit, but his friends were. I think he was at that time in St. Petersburg. And he looked at the Aksharmala of Sanskrit, which is a two-dimensional thing. And at that time, there were certain questions related to certain elements as to where whether there are going to be certain other elements related to these with certain properties. And, but the moment this fundamental intuition of insight that, well, just as uttered sound is two-dimensional, perhaps uttered atoms also have a two-dimensional structure. And it was that insight that he held on to. And, and in fact, he, once he had this insight, he postulated five or six different atoms, which he gave Sanskrit names uh, in terms of Pratham, Duthi, and so on. And then later on, they were discovered, which is what sealed his model. Then people said, yeah. And then um, uh, the Europeans and Indians themselves uh, forgot uh, that, uh, that the inspirational point was the Akshamala. Now, of course, uh, just to uh, tie this thought up together, one of the most astonishing insights that you have from the Indian sciences, you know, sometimes in India, people conflate sciences with bhakti. You know, we have the Indian Shastras, which are absolutely incredible. The, the Shastras, for example, Vaisheshika or Nyaya is logic or Sankhya is uh, creation, both at the individual and the cosmic level. Or you have yoga and yoga, as we know, is conquering the world, even in Iran. Uh, it's one of the most popular things going on. And yoga is really, what, what is yoga? Yoga is Hinduism in practice, right? And then you had uh, Purva Mimansa, which was tradition, and Uttar Mimansa, which was Vedanta. You know, the whole idea was, these are all sciences. There's no divinity, etc., which is brought into this. Uh, 
you, on the one hand, you had Nyaya, which is uh, words and their structure, right? Logic. On the other side, you have Vaisheshika, which are atoms, right? And their structure was to be similar. So what the Rishis saw, why only six darshanas? The Rishi said, well, let's suppose you're in space. You're in, a, you're in a crystal cube. There would be six sides, right? You'll be sitting, standing on, a, on one side, which is the floor, which is Purva Mimansa. Then you have two one sides opposite to each other, which are Nyaya and Vaisheshika. Two other opposite sides, which are uh, Sankhya and Yoga. And on the ceiling, the most biggest question that you can ever ask for is Vedanta, right? There can be only six sides. Why don't we celebrate it? Isn't this extraordinary? You know, the more you think of it, one can speak with Schopenhauer, the great German philosopher or the transcendentalist from America who said, when we are depressed, when we are down, there's nothing as inspirational as the Upanishads. And why are we not connected back to the Upanishads to inspire ourselves, to inspire our children and to be fearless? What can I say, Professor? This is, uh, uh, this is the tragedy of modern India. The more we have uh, striven to become scientific and modern, I think the more we have... Uh, actually gone farther away from the roots of what uh, can actually define modern society. Uh, you know, we could go on, uh, you know, for a long, long time on this, but uh, I do want to open this up to our, uh, you know, to our uh, uh, viewers today. Uh, and we'll take any questions. So we have a few very distinguished, uh, uh, you know, participants uh, there. So what I have done, everyone, is I've unmuted you. So you can go ahead and ask questions if uh, uh, you know you uh, you can if you want you can switch on your video, but uh, in either case, please go ahead and if you have any questions. Yes, uh, uh, please go ahead. This DV, yeah, DV. I'm from Chennai. Thank you both for this wonderful talk. Uh, I would like to go back to what the professor said earlier about what's happening in Europe to today in regard to the immigrant problem, immigrant process, happened in Kashmir about a thousand years ago. And he gave that as an example of a recursive process. Uh, I want to know, uh, I, I, I understand, I'm, I'm not very sure I understand it correctly. A recursion would mean circular. That means it'll recurse back, I mean, sort of complete. But what has happened in Kashmir seems to have been a linear process. There seems to be no return to what it was before the immigrants came. It seems uh, there'll be no return to it at all. Is that the process that's happening in Europe? Europe has also ended in a linear kind of a process. In other words, to simply put, is Islam going to prevail over the local culture? Uh well, you know, as in any complex process, there are always two different sides. But there are people, uh, thoughtful people, who believe that indeed Islam would prevail in Europe because of that demographic collapse that has taken place. But my own take is that uh, the problem will get worse. There is more of an insistence in Europe, perhaps even more than in America, to uh, to acknowledge and to to submit to the demands 
of the immigrants. Uh, for example, the Austrian president uh, two or three days ago said, well, maybe all Austrian women should start wearing the hijab in order to forestall Islamophobia. That if there are some people who are, who are looking at um, Muslims uh, in a negative way, and if you cannot completely eliminate that, then everybody, every uh, person in um, Austria should start wearing the hijab. And something similar happened in Kashmir as well. Because if you look at Kashmiri histories, um, and the, the, as, as you know, Kashmir was a great uh, place of learning. You find that Kashmir had a great tradition of dance and music and so on. But after Kashmir became Islamicized, Kashmiri Hindus themselves stopped all those arts. When we were growing up in Kashmir, for example, um, our um, girls, uh, we, we are not encouraged to, or they were not supposed to learn dance because that there were certain parameters that the society had put in place, which we had embraced. And I think the same thing is going to happen even in India or in other parts. And, uh, and to that extent, yes, it is a sort of linear. But um, what is probably more likely to happen because I think the I think Europeans and Americans are probably much more aware of history than Indians are because we sort of there's not that much of manthan going on and that's what we need all the time. What's more likely to happen is that there would be a reaction, and we are only one can only hope that that reaction would be such so that. They, it would lead to a peaceful assimilation because clearly it's not so easy to reverse that demographic decline. And also what is happening is, and one reason why people don't want to have children anymore is because there's something in the air that, well, there are no jobs for the next generation. So, so because of that, um, there would, in my view, be a much more complex process of assimilation. There could, the worst thing would be that there would be some kind of a civil war. So uh, unlike Francis Fukuyama's conception of end of history, we might have the most, uh, you know, most um, unpleasant history uh, uh, taking place in the next few decades. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Any other questions? I'm sorry. Uh, uh, um, yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, um, Abhinav, this is uh, Srinivas. Uh, Professor Kaka, I have a question. Uh, this is about uh, uh, what you spoke about towards the end about the six darshanas being the six sides of a cube. Now, is that insight uh, found in some of the, or any of the Indian texts, or is that uh, your insight? I just want to ask that. No, it's not found in the Indian texts. You know, there's a lot of stuff uh, which uh, uh, is not explicitly stated. This whole thing about you know, 108, for example, 108 being uh, the distance to the sun and the moon, from the earth in sun diameters and the moon diameters is not explicitly stated. And in fact, my own uh, discovery of the astronomy of the Vedic period on which I wrote uh, the book uh, in the 1990s 
called the astronomical code of the Rigveda, was derived from my just reading this because it's there are so many indirect ways. It's already out there uh, that here is an acknowledgement that people recognized it, and because the outer the Brahmanda is mirrored in the pinda, right, in the cell and and the body. That's the reason why then you are doing these 108 symbolic steps, or you have the 107 marmas in Ayurveda, because if you had 108 things joined together, there would be 107 marmas or weak spots in that. So there are lots of hints. So there's no specific place where these six sides to the cube are stated. But I think it's all there for one to see. And, and there's so much more to see if only we were to look at uh, the text, not just the Vedic text, but also the Puranas. Puranas have a lot of amazing wisdom, which um, because uh, uh, they mix so many different things. And because we tend to look at things only literally, we are looking for a literal, uh, literal thing, which is like, how a lot of people right now are writing things. Okay, here is my uh, astronomical software, and therefore the Mahabharata took place not in uh, X uh, BC, but maybe Y BC or 10,000 BC or 200,000 BC, or looking at those yugas in a literal sense. Uh, I think a lot of that is sadly a waste of thing because you've got to bring in evidence from so many different places. So it's all interlocking. We can't just do things because they, they, they tend to push uh, the ages further and further back in time. You know, you've got to have everything interlocking. It's got, there are other evidence, for example, the, the genealogies in Brihadaranya uh, Kupanishad and other Puranas, which also must square with, uh, with these uh, uh, reassessments that some people are trying to attempt. Thank you, Professor. Okay, uh, we may be able to take one more question. If not, then I'm going to close this uh, today's Indic Chat webinar, and uh, we will put this up uh, on YouTube for available for uh, to be av available for everyone, and also share a link out. So, if there are no more questions, going once, going twice, going thrice. Professor Kark, thank you, thank you again. I'm thank you, thank you. Really enjoyed thank it. You. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, wonderful. Uh, thank you, sir. Thank you, I. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you again, and thank you, Professor Kark, for uh, this uh, fascinating, uh, you know, uh, set of uh, you know uh, answers you gave. And thank you, everyone, for joining in today. Thank you. Good, good evening and good morning. <laughs> thank you.